Hi guys, welcome to Rise Stronger Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Lane Norton. I'm sure the majority of the listeners will know who Lane is. Um, if you don't, then you should know he's what I would consider one of the kind of original evidence-based kind of guys within natural bodybuilding, one of the first, if not the first. Um, and he has a PhD in nutrition science. Uh, he is a world and national record holder in the squat in the IPF and the USPAL and the USPAL um, and national record holding in the deadlift as well. So not only like started off in bodybuilding, but obviously found that you were incredibly successful at powerlifting as well. He's co-founded Carbon Diet Coach, which is a really cool AI app, co-founded Outwork Nutrition Supplements, has a coaching team and a member site. So like I mean, you can only get to be able to do these things if you've grown kind of really respectable business. So um, and obviously multiple kind of published eBooks kind of covering fat loss and contest prep. And I think a lot of our listeners, this is very, mainly kind of people who coach physique competitors or physique competitors themselves, like I'd be gobsmacked if they didn't know who you were, Lane, and kind of <laughs> some of your, like, it's kind of the some of the old articles and things you put out were like, they were the first bits of evidence-based information that a bodybuilder could find on something like peaking or something. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm super pumped to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. I've, I've, uh, I know we've talked about me coming on for a while. It just hasn't kind of lined up with the schedule. So I'm happy we're able to carve out uh, a little time and make it happen. But I appreciate the intro too. And just to, just to clarify, former record holder, it's my, my world record's been broken. I think like 20 times now. Okay. <laughs> so, Sorry. Uh, it, it, I think it lasted nine months originally, which is pretty good in powerlifting. So I'll, I'll take it, but uh, you know, still a, a cool uh, and a proud feeling to be able to, to do something like that, you know, yeah. um, especially while, like juggling um, a lot of extra stuff, you know, in terms of uh, academics and business and parenting and all that jazz. No, definitely. And I think uh, like, uh, you have to forgive me. I'm so far from the powerlifting world now that I, I don't keep, I keep track no with all that. So I just like, I just know Lane what, you was mean you don't wildly keep strong. Every, every record there is out there? <laughs> so yeah, something I wanted to really discuss and it's come up on the podcast a few times, but never maybe in a huge amount of depth. And I think you'd be someone incredible to talk to this about is kind of what does evidence-based even mean to yourself? Uh, what would you say kind of stuff like anecdote? How powerful is that for us? Um, and then finally, kind of how important is science, do you feel like for like physique development? That's a great question. In fact, um, my wife and I recently started a podcast called uh, Beauty and the Geek. And our first episode was about what does evidence-based mean to us. Um, and I think it might surprise some people to, to know what evidence-based means because I've just found overall in life, people really like extremes. They like fitting things into boxes. And so like, you know, when we started, when, when I started in fit, the fitness industry back in 2002, when I wrote my first article, um, you know, it was basically bro culture. Like there was, there was very little kind of evidence base, right? But now we've gotten to the point where it's like, if you say anything, you can even say, this is my opinion. And if you don't produce a PubMed citation showing exactly that, somebody said, well, you're not evidence-based, you know? And um, yeah, I had somebody send me something the other day and um they say, well, what do you think about this? And they're like, want me to go after this person. And literally the first thing the person says is, this is my opinion. 
And I said, well, I disagree with his opinion, but at least he says it's his opinion. Like, you know, you're allowed to have an opinion. It might be stupid, but you're allowed to have it, you know? Um, So I I think when it comes to evidence-based, I think it's more of an ethos than anything and just a, a commitment to honesty, right? Because there's tons of evidence-based people who disagree on stuff, you know, like I don't agree, like me and Eric Holmes, uh, like I would say we all agree on the majority of things, like in terms of like, none of us is over here saying, hey bro, carbs can make you store fat in an energy deficit. Like, you know, no no legitimate evidence-based practitioner is saying that, right? Um, but like, do we have disagreements on like the utility of certain supplements or like uh, how to recover after a contest, be it, you know, your traditional like uh, reverse dieting or recovery diet, which by the way, those aren't that much different if you actually listen to what I say. But um, like we, we will disagree on certain things, but if you listen to the way we disagree, that is really evidence-based. And if you even listen to something when I'm talking about something like reverse dieting, where there is no you know empirical evidence to support that, I will be very careful about how I word things and say, hey, listen, this is my opinion. Now, this is based on a lot of anecdote that we've collected from clients over the years, but you don't have to use this. And this isn't the end all be all. This is not a magic solution, right? Um, So when when people talk about stuff that way, I think that's very evidence-based. Evidence-based doesn't mean you have to have a PubMed citation every time you you say something. It just means you're honest when you don't have one, right? Mm -hmm. So Usually, if I make a claim, I'm going to back that up with some sort of citation. And um, if I don't have a citation, I'm going to say, this is my opinion, and I could be wrong. Or I'm going to make a leap. Or like I'll say, literally, if you put a gun to my head and make me answer truthfully, this is what I'm going to tell you, right? So I think when you frame it that way, just that kind of ethos is evidence-based, that because you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to have a master's, you don't even have to have a, a, a degree to be evidence-based. It's just about, I think it's about being like ruthlessly honest hmm. with how you evaluate information and don't like do your best not to cherry pick. And I'll tell people, you know, everybody has bias. Anybody who says they don't have bias is lying or they don't understand bias. Like bias in and of itself is not, does not disqualify you from providing information. Everyone has bias. It's about who's honest about their bias, right? So like when we talk about like flexible dieting or whatever, or stuff I do, I'll be like, listen, I'm biased towards that because that's something I found utility with. But especially over the years, I have come to find that, hey, turns out everything that is my favorite thing isn't somebody else's favorite thing, shockingly, right? So I think just that mindset of being ruthlessly honest, trying to understand other perspectives and being willing, here's the big one, being willing to admit when you got something wrong. A lot of people like say all the time, Lane's so arrogant. He would never admit if he got something wrong. I'm like, have you been paying attention over the last 15 years? Like since I've been there, I've like changed my mind on all kinds of stuff. You know, even recently as uh, branched-chain amino acids, like branched-chain amino acids were in my uh, carbon line and now they're not in my outwork line. And a lot of people ask me, well, why don't you have them in there? Now, do I think there's still some utility for certain populations? I do. I just don't think it's enough 
toward the cost or uh, for the majority of people who are eating high enough protein. So uh, I didn't include them. And I had to go out and, and make a statement and say, hey, this is why, you know, there's, there's, a, there's much more evidence that's come out. And I don't feel like I could include them uh, knowing this evidence uh, in good faith, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because people say, well, you were big on these for 15 years and you're flip-flopping. I'm like, if you want to call it flip-flopping, fine. I'm calling it changing my mind based on evidence. Like, you know, I don't, I wish a politician could say something like, Hey, uh, turns out I was actually probably a little bit wrong about this thing years ago. Uh, and I changed my mind. Like, can you imagine like somebody mm-hmm. would be crucified? Right. Um, but yeah, like if I, if I just stuck to my guns or whatever, like that's something that's just, I just wouldn't feel good about it. Right. So I think that's a big thing. And another like smaller microcosm of that is I think when I was on the Rogan podcast, I had said something about amenorrhea. I had commented that it didn't appear that there were any really negative health outcomes other than like, you know, just cycle loss. And it turns out like I had a couple of dietitians who sent me messages who corrected me. So I went on my Instagram and said, Hey guys, I got this wrong. I'm sorry about that. You know, I should have, um, I should have, uh, been a little bit more qualifying with that answer I gave. Right. Yeah. That to me is evidence-based. It doesn't mean you're never wrong. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't even mean you don't make claims that you can't support with data. It just means you're really ruthlessly honest about how you frame those claims. And then are you willing to go back and say, Hey, I I, might've been wrong about this thing. I really love that answer because I think a lot of people kind of have an idea of what the elements of evidence base are in terms of like your experiences, your clients' experiences, the science. But I don't think it's ever been framed, at least I haven't heard it framed as just being like intellectually honest and being upfront about this is an opinion, this is based off like this research, whatever it might be. And I think it's so important. It's actually, it's kind of upsetting. Well, truly to a scientist like yourself, like it's upsetting that people aren't willing to allow you to not be dogmatic they almost want you to be dogmatic they want a black and white answer and so when you change your mind they're almost like oh my gosh like can i trust you anymore because you've changed your mind it's like well actually you should probably trust lane even more for updating your viewpoints on things because science is never kind of standing still it's always like we're just finding the truth more and more so uh, i think that's yeah just a, a really good thing that you are that honest with everything and something obviously uh, you've grown your popularity over social media and i mean it must be really tough because you almost have to always watch what you say and if you haven't always kind of had that in yourself like you're not a politician so you haven't always had to like be careful and you don't have someone teaching you kind of how to do these things so you have to kind of be careful and i guess you're learning all the time um but obviously you're one of the flu- few of the evidence-based area who have really grown an influence especially like over instagram or on youtube which is fantastic um but I guess, how how have you balanced growing that whilst maintaining as much of an evidence-based feel and kind of your kind of own kind of principles behind what you're trying to do? Because I, I would imagine as anyone listening, they've probably thought about, I don't know, you, you could probably sell out if you wanted to um, with various tactics, but you've managed to keep like the core of, yeah, I'm, I'm laying science guy. Yeah. Well, if you listen to the echo chamber of the low carb extremists, I'm being paid by big sugar. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a, uh, I had a guy, uh, ironically, his uh, Twitter handle is fructose. No, which is pretty funny. Um, 
His evidence for that was a three-year-old blurry image of me next to a crate of monster. By the way, they were the no sugar monsters, which is also hilarious. <laughs> um, picture of me with them say, see, he's paid off by Coca-Cola. And I'm, yeah. So it's, you're right. People like to fit in boxes. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's two things to that. I think some people know they're being dishonest. And don't care because it's a kind of a means to an end, right? I th nobody wants to not be evidence-based, right? Like everyone wants to think that they're evidence-based. But when you get into this industry, uh, this is a like, we're kind of like the music industry and the film industry. This industry will chew you up and spit you out. It is very competitive, right? And um, it's very hard to gain a, a foothold, traction. You know, people see me now and they're like, oh, 400,000 followers on Instagram, or this and that, or I'll people like, I've been following you forever. I've been following you since 2013. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? I already arrived in 2013. Like, I've been at this since 2002, right? So part of the reason I was successful when I got to social media is because I already had like a hardcore underground, underground following from the message boards. Because I made 100,000 posts on various bodybuilding message boards from around 2002 to 2012, over 10 years. I wrote hundreds of articles for free that I'll never get paid for. I went on hundreds of podcasts. I made hundreds of videos, tons of content. Um, I, I answered over, I estimate, I answered over a quarter of a million emails uh, for free, like never expecting anything over my career, right? So when people ask me, well, how do I be successful? I'm like, well, Here's what I did. Huh. If you want to start, oh, by the way, I did a PhD and then was successful in natural bodybuilding and powerlifting and all that stuff. You know, all that stuff adds up. So it was really just a mass effect of producing a lot of content and forcing my voice to be heard, right? And I think the other thing that is a little bit different about me, <laughs> you're asking like, how do I grow this following and also be evidence-based? Uh, I curse a lot, uh, which is different, you know? <laughs> so I think that's one of the things about me that's a lot, different than some other evidence-based people. Yeah. There's a few out there, but I think I'm able to educate, but also entertain. Um, and I'm, I think I'm able to, there's a lot of really good evidence-based people that can break stuff down for people like me. Like if you've ever read, for example, Greg Knuckles stuff like mass, like if you're a coach and you're not subscribed to Greg's stuff, you are out of your mind, right? Like that is some of the most gold content out there. But for the average person who's just looking to drop some pounds and keep it off, like how applicable is that content? I mean, it's still applicable, but it's probably harder to digest. I mean, mm. their, their podcast is fabulous, but it's some very high level discussion on some stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's stuff that even I find valuable. Yeah. So what we try to do is we try to kind of bridge that gap between really hardcore science and the average person. And we make it entertaining. And I think the other thing I do that's different than a lot of people is I'm not afraid to go after individuals. Like, and I, it's not, I, I try to go after statements yeah. first. Um, but if I see a pattern of behavior, I'll also go after individuals. And I mean, it's, it's been tough because I've gotten cease and desist letters and you know, people will say, well, you should take them to court and win. Um, as somebody who's been in lawsuits, I understand very, very, very well that only attorneys win in lawsuits. 
So if you want to stand on principle, you can just kiss a hundred grand goodbye every time you stand on principle. So sometimes it's live to fight another day, especially when you're dealing with some of the bigger, like I got a cease and desist from a very, very big name, top 10 author, you know, in these books and the books are terrible. Um, and so I was like, all right, do I want to waste my time mm. and stress and money fighting this? And I'll probably win and it'd be really hard to collect. Or do I want to just, I'll take down the post. And I'll continue pumping out good content, you know? So that's one thing I think that's different than me is, is people see that. And some people, some people in the evidence-based community really frown on that. And, you know, they say, Lane, why can't you? you know, do this and focus on the positive stuff and this and that. I'll be like, well, I get what you're saying. And along to, for, I think for a while, I kind of had that mentality. Like mm. before 2013, I kind of had that mentality was I'm not going to call anybody out by name. I'm just going to call out bad ideas, bad claims. Um, and eventually the charlatans, people will figure it out. And then what I figured out was it doesn't work that way because there's always new people coming in who are gullible, who don't understand these people are very persuasive. You know, it's very difficult because like, you'll see somebody like me saying, well, we think this, but maybe this, and we aren't sure, you know, that's that to the average person looks like un, un, somebody's unsure. Mm -hmm. Whereas this person over here goes, well, no, it's just carbs, just carbs. Uh, big sugar has paid off everything. And, you know, the government's trying to make you fat. And, you know, like there's a lot of appeals to various logical fallacies, which sadly are much more palatable to people than, you know, the idea that this is probably quite nuanced and a difficult problem and there may not be one solution, right? So I think as far as me gaining a foothold, I'm not exactly sure, you know, why people resonated with me so much because I think if you look at kind of the hardcore evidence-based community, I would say other than Brett Contreras, I've probably got the biggest following of the kind of like ruthlessly evidence-based community. Um, uh, you know, James Smith has a pretty big Instagram, but I would say across platforms, I would say I'm probably consistently one of the bigger ones. Jeff mm -hmm. Gifford, another really big one. Um, but who, who knows? For whatever reason, uh, people, you know, people people vibe with me and my message, you know, yeah. and I think, I think part of it is the education plus entertainment. Um, and I think some people just like to see me call it bullshit. I, I honestly, I do. Um, yeah. you know, and again, like some people I've had discussions with, you know, Eric Helms and Eric's a great guy, you know, and he'll say, Lane, why do you get into these debates, you know, and, and do that? And I, I think one of the things I've tried to tell Eric and, and, and people, other people who have said this to me is I'm like, you know, I'm not the person I'm debating with. I'm not trying to change their mind because I, I likely yeah. I'm not going to. I'm trying to change the mind of somebody who might not quite be bought all the way in. I've had so many, I can't tell you how many messages from people I've gotten saying, I used to hate you, <laughs> but I followed you anyway. And just over time, you wore me down with logic, you know? Uh, and I realized that I was in an echo chamber or that I was, yeah. you know, believing in bullshit. And, so that's why, you know, and I, I was actually discussing this with my wife because Holly's more, like, Holly's very much like very different from me in the way she handles. She's very nice, very cordial. She's never going to say anything nasty, you know, very, very polite person. And I said, you know, it's really great because like you're this way and people who vibe with that are going to follow you. 
and here's me, I'm this way, <laughs> right? And people who vibe with me are going to follow me because, you know, some people, even if they like my information, they're not going to like the way it's delivered. And that's okay because, you know, there's, it's cable TV. You can turn the channel, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, I think I've just kind of found that, that, that vibe of people who are sick of, you know, sugarcoating the, and allowing, you know, bullshit. And, um, I think they, they like the fact that I'm kind of, you know, I kind of go after it head on. Yeah. No, I can, I can definitely see that. And I think there's someone who comes to mind who's done similar in terms of maybe, well, Brett Contreras called some people out for a period of time. Yes, I knew he, he had his yeah, guru he series. Um, Mark McDonald has done it in the past yeah. a little bit with, um, I've forgotten his name even. So he did it with someone in the past. I don't know why I've forgotten the name, but um, Joe Wicks, that's the one. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's whether or not it's right or wrong. I think it's something that I can see why kind of, I don't know, people who are very evidence-based or like scientific minded might struggle with it. But I think it there needs probably to be people like yourself who can grow a following and be kind of an influence because unfortunately for especially like reaching larger audiences who don't have that skeptical mindset, who are maybe a bit more gem pop, who want that hard and dry answer. If someone just talks in a kind of really influential way and they sound really kind of um, like intelligent, they're very confident in the way they speak, like they just trust that person. So I think, <clears throat> I think a lot of it too is a lot of the evidence-based people who are from academia, right, who have done a PhD or a master's, you know, you're taught, you don't go after the person, you go after the idea. Yeah. Right. So it kind of goes against that academic ethos. Right. But I got out of academia for a good reason. Not, I, I really enjoyed my uh, experience in research. I really enjoyed it, but I knew it wasn't where I wanted to make my living. Um, and I also knew I didn't want to be beholden to a university to say, Hey, we'd really like it if you, you know, tone down your tweets a little bit, you know? So, um, yeah, and I think that there is room for those people, but I also think that I think you know I can't remember the exact quote, but Martin Luther King, you know, basically said something to Martin Luther King Jr. said something to the effect of, you know, not standing up, and I'm going to butcher the quote. I'm just paraphrasing. Not standing up against something that's wrong is the same thing as saying that's okay. Right. Right. Um, I think Edmund Burke had a quote that was like, the only, this is a little bit off a little bit, but it, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, right? I'm not saying I'm out here saving the world or anything, but, you know, people will say all the time, they're like, well, it's actually the individual's fault because they shouldn't believe that nonsense. Who would actually believe that? That's not true because there are very smart people who believe very, very dumb things. Because if you don't check yourself, an echo chamber is the easiest thing to get sucked into. Like uh, my, you know, my background, I was fun. My research was funded by like the egg and dairy council and a little bit from beef. It would be so easy for me to buy into the carnivore movement, right? Like that would be the easiest thing in the world. But, but I know vegetables are good. Like, like I've read the research, right? Like I'm not going to get sucked into that. But it would be easy for me because that appeals to, oh, more protein, better. Yeah. That's my bias, right? It'd be easy for me to get sucked into that. But I don't allow that because I check myself repeatedly. Mm -hmm. But you could just go through the list of Nobel Prize winners 
who believed in absolute nonsense. It's actually a phenomenon. I think it, there's something like two dozen Nobel Prize winners by the ends of their careers believed in things like healing crystals. And, you know, one of the more famous ones, Linus Pauling, who believed in massive doses of vitamin C. And, you know, people even say that that also goes to a larger point, just because you're good in one area of science does not mean you know what you're talking about in another area of science. Mm. People go, well, he's a Nobel award-winning physicist. He, he wouldn't believe in bullshit. I, yeah, he would. Yeah, he would. <laughs> Cause he did, you know? So I think we have to be careful we can't just put all the emphasis on the individual. Yes, there is some responsibility on the consumer to try to evaluate claims, but it's most people don't have that skill set. If you look at one of the most intelligent things I ever heard was uh, Greg Knuckles actually said on our podcast years ago. He said, if you're talking to somebody, within five minutes, you will know whether or not they know more than you about a particular subject. Like you'll, you'll get a pretty good gauge about how much they know about a particular subject, whether it's less, more, or about the same as you. So we're good at being able to evaluate that. What we're really, really bad at is if two people have more knowledge than us on a subject, which is the more knowledgeable of the two? That is something that human beings are terrible at evaluating. So no, people don't have the skill set to effectively evaluate those. That's why I really try to like point out logical fallacies. And I do this all the time on my Twitter um, because I think people will start, if you appreciate, if you understand the principles of logic and how to ask for evidence and evaluate claims, you can usually start to sniff out bullshit, even if you aren't super familiar with the topic at hand. Fast, efficient fat loss. Does that sound like music to your ears? The mini cut movement might just be for you. Mini cuts are like robbing the fat bank. You want to get in and out with as much fat as possible. In a short period of time, you could easily look to lose 6 to 12 pounds of fat. The mini cut movement is excellent. There's group support for extra accountability and also expert help within the group. We have educational videos to keep you on track along the way and you get all your nutrition and training customized and individualized for you. So if that sounds of interest, get involved with the mini cut movement. Absolutely. I think uh, I think I feel like logical fallacy should be taught in school <laughs> so that you have uh, I guess it maybe it is in some uh, like debating if there was like a debating club or something maybe they, they probably do teach you logical fallacies but as a standard well, what's crazy is if you if you watch the presidential debates the logical fallacies are all <laughs> over the place right so it doesn't even like even even using them isn't a negative anymore I guess yeah. just how dumb our society is on average absolutely oh gosh um so i wanted to touch on that at least and we you've already actually touched on some things i wanted to talk about in more depth and to really kind of just like dig into your brain and obviously um, talk about some subjects you already brought up the reverse diet and i think a lot of people probably people who've listened to this podcast have maybe got well lots of people got the wrong interpretation of maybe what the reverse diet is what the updated version is like you already mentioned you've updated it because science has changed and evolved and we know more um i'd love to hear kind of from your mouth what is the reverse diet as far as you want it to be i know you've got the the book on it so people can learn even more on that from the book but if you were to summarize it and how does it differ to the recovery diet yeah, great, great question. So, uh, yes, shameless plug, we do have a book out called The Complete uh, Reverse Dieting Guide. Um, I think reverse dieting, if I'd encapsulated a statement, would be just simply a systematic way of 
reintroducing calories after a prolonged period of calorie restriction, right? So people ask me all the time, do I need a reverse diet out of like a mini cut or something? No. I had somebody say, well, I'm going away for, I'm going to do a cut for a week. Do I need a reverse diet out of that? No. (laughs) Um, So what I, my background for a long time was coaching contest prep clients. That's where I cut my teeth, especially in natural bodybuilding. And what I would notice is, man, people could add back fat really quickly after a show. I mean, shockingly fast to the point where somebody could diet for 24 weeks and within one week they could eat to the point where it didn't even look like they dieted at all. Um, And so I found, especially for people who wanted to compete pretty frequently, meaning yearly, um, if they wanted to compete yearly, going through that whole rebound and rediet process was extremely difficult on them. Uh, not just physically, but psychologically as well. And now we have so much more information about the negative psychological uh, effects of contest prep, especially for drug-free bodybuilders. And I'll tell drug-free bodybuilders, like, point blank, don't compete every year. Don't, just don't do it. Like, it's, it's actually just not a good idea, which, side note, organizations out there who say you have to compete every year to keep your pro card – uh, you are going to run your athletes into the ground. Anyway, that's a side note. Um, so I, I started toying around and I, I, I didn't come up with the term reverse diet. I think actually Alberto Nunez was the first one to kind of use that terminology. So I kind of co-opted it. Um, I did notice that it seemed that, especially for people who got pretty lean and were still really dialed in on their nutrition, if we slowly added in calories versus doing it really quickly, um, it seemed like we could add a disproportionate amount without them gaining much body fat compared to if we just did it quickly. So to me, it felt like maybe something was there with the kinetics. Now, there's no empirical evidence to back this up, right? This is just anecdote for me. But I've seen some pretty impressive anecdote uh, with some of my clients. I mean, I, we had a guy who... Um, he finished his diet and he was on, I want to say like 240 grams of protein, 160 grams of carbohydrate, 55 grams of fat. And in 10 weeks we got him to where he, I mean, if you look at his pictures, he had actually lost body fat and his calorie, his protein, we had dropped it just a little bit, like 20 grams, but his carbohydrates were up to 400 grams per day and his fat was up to almost 90. I mean, that's a sizable calorie increase and he lost weight and body fat during that time. And if, if I showed you the pictures, you would say, absolutely, he lost body fat. Now, people have misinterpreted that from, from me saying, Lane saying the law of thermodynamics don't count and you know you can lose fat while you're in a surplus. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is at least for these individuals who have this phenomenon occur, um, it appears that their increase in energy expenditure in response to a slow increase in calories appears disproportionate, right? So we, we do know that metabolism is not static, right? We know metabolism adapts. And some people, it appears, are more adaptable than others. Insofar as uh, I've even, my wife and I came up with the concept of a maintenance calorie range. And this was just kind of complete logical deduction uh, based on our our experience, but I'll tell people, I'm like, you know, cause everybody's a lot of, especially natural bodybuilders have had this thing where they like, Oh, I'm going to do a lean bulk and just add, you know, a hundred calorie surplus. 
and just, you know, I'll gain like, you know, a quarter pound a week or whatever it is. And it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's done it knows this. It'll be like nothing, 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 two pounds, right? Like, so my concept was, or our concept was that there's this kind of maintenance range of calories. That's, we think it's about 20% is our rough estimate. Meaning if your maintenance, like middle of your maintenance range is say 2000 calories, you could probably eat above 10% and below 10% and really not have a whole lot happen with your weight. Now, is that for everybody? No, I'm sure there are some people who would respond to that. Um, but it kind of makes sense. So if you're in a reverse diet and people who have reversed have seen this where they will not gain weight or even maybe lose a little bit of weight and then all of a sudden they'll gain a chunk of weight in a, in a couple week time frame. Um, I think what's happening is as we're moving that dial, because again, metabolism adapts, you're sitting at that top end of your maintenance range. And then finally you get to a calorie increase that gets you outside of that range. And all of a sudden now it shows up in an actual you know, water plus tissue, that sort of thing. Um, and we see this on the, on the bottom end too. Like when we're dieting, you know, everyone's hit a plateau before in weight loss. But if you've plateaued, I mean, technically that means you're at maintenance, right? So you theoretically to pick up another half kilo of weight loss a week, you should have to drop another 500 calories. But I can tell you that you don't need to do that. Um, usually you need to, if you drop another hundred calories, mm-hmm you'll pick back up right now. What could possibly explain that? Well, to me, the concept of a maintenance range of calories kind of explains that where as you're dieting, you're now at that bottom end range. And as you, your metabolism adapts and a deficit no longer becomes a deficit, you start to get back in that maintenance range. It doesn't take a huge bump. It probably just takes a small bump to get you back out of that. So again, this is all anecdote. People can say I'm full of crap. Maybe I am, but this is my best guess is to explain what we're observing. Now, that being said, um, for example, that particular client who I was talking about, uh, this is a great learning experience for me. So this guy is getting like was shredded, absolutely shredded, eating 400 grams of carbs a day. And he wasn't that big either. He was like 75 kilos, I want to say. Wasn't that big. Um, And he didn't do tons of cardio either. So he was getting shredded on that amount of weight, but one week he te- checks him and I'm just like, man, this is so cool. He's getting leaner. We're adding calories. It's awesome. So he checks in with me one week. And he's like, Hey, could I add some body fat? I actually really still feel like trash. Like I'm still really tired. I have no sex drive. I think about food all the time. So uh, the, the scientist portion of my brain had been working, but the human portion of my brain had turned off, you know? So yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, I don't care if you're not shredded, you know, like I just thought this was really cool. So, you know, we just started bumping up his calories more aggressively, let him gain some body fat and then he felt better. So that's the, that's the thing to keep in mind is like, even if you were able to maintain a really lean physique on, on, on higher calories, it doesn't mean you still won't feel like crap, right? Um, so what we've kind of amended it to is we, we think any reverse diet should start at maintenance calories. Now, here's where I had, I took issue with like Eric and Alan's recommendations of start at maintenance was they were very vague about what maintenance actually was because your maintenance at the end of a long diet is not the same as your maintenance when you started the diet. 
Mm-hmm. So I was like, guys, let's be clear. Which which maintenance are we talking about? And I think Eric has actually clarified that it's actual, like at that time, yeah. maintenance. And if that's what we're talking about, I'm 100% on board with that. That should be the absolute minimum, right? Should be the absolute minimum. Uh, and then like from there, you build up. Uh, and that's like how we built our app. Uh, the reverse dining mode in our app starts at maintenance. And then, you know, we, we build that over time and they can have the option for a calorie boost with maintenance of either 10 or 20%, depending on, you know, if they want to feel more normal faster. That's more so for people who get really shredded. You know, if somebody went from being obese to just being normal, you know, they don't really need to like calorie boost, right? Because it, you know, it's not like they're, it's not like they're screwed up. They're actually just getting back into a healthy body weight. So I, again, I think, I think one of the problems is, and I, had, I actually had this discussion on a live the other day. When, when we have disagreements in evidence base, a lot of it is just, we are so busy with our own, like people ask me, have you read this book? I'm like, when the, like, what do you think I do? <laughs> like, no. I have not read a book. I'm too busy with my own shit. Trust me. Like my stuff keeps me plenty busy. Um, so no, I haven't read anybody's book. Uh, and that's not a knock. But I also don't read much of other people's stuff, right? Yeah. So usually what happens is somebody comes to me and says, hey, such and such said this. But such and such actually didn't say that when I go and look at it. Like if it's an evidence-based person, right? Um, and it's the same with me. People will go to somebody else and say, Hey, Lane said this. And then do you agree with this? And the person will just respond to what the person is telling them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden now you've got evidence-based people who are arguing who actually aren't arguing. You know, this is like, uh, you know, Lyle McDonald came after me years ago and I'm like, Lyle, did you actually watch the video where I talk about this or where I written about it? Or did you just read the title and listen to what people told you? You know, so I think that's the, that's the problem is we're all very busy and, and sometimes we, we actually forget to go and say, you know what, I, I wonder if that's what the person actually said. And this is the same thing with, um, I'm having a debate on September 25th with a guy named uh, Tro, who's a, um, a physician, who's a, a low carb advocate. And I've just seen him straw man my position so many times, Yeah, you know, where it's like, what I say is, hey, if you are able to create an energy deficit or maintain energy balance and you want to have something with sugar in it and it doesn't cause you to be you know, super hungry, you don't overeat it, that sort of thing, there's very little evidence that that's bad for you as long as you're hitting all your other you know, nutritional requirements. That's what I say. What they think I say or what they hear is Lane is saying people should eat sugar. Yeah. Right? No, that's not what I said. In fact, I think it's probably a bad idea for most people to eat a lot of sugar. But if we're talking about somebody with a lot of lean body mass who is trying to add body weight, for example, or build lean body mass, who is satiated all the time because their food volume is so high, uh, sugar can actually be a really useful tool for being able to get enough calories in. But it's very contextually and personal dependent. Yeah, yeah, but it's just unfortunately – you know, those, those, when you sit most reasonable people down and have a conversation, you're not that far off. But I think one thing Eric Helms said that I really liked, he was interviewing uh, Gabrielle Fundero and he was talking about the um, health at every size movement mm. is we tend to kind of like scarecrow um, the most extreme position of the other person, right? Like we pick that out or like, 
if I'm, you know, if I'm going after low carb people, for example, well, then we tend to just take the most, you know, insane claim that gets made and we use that and say, this, see, this represents that community. Now, I, I try not to do that, right? That's why I, people are like, why do you use the term zealot so much? I'm like, because I don't want to just categorize all low carb people as zealots, yeah. right? I don't want to categorize all vegans as zealots, but are there zealots in those communities? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and we do this in politics too, right? So it's like, um, like now it is so hypersensitive. You know, I, I, I try to stay out of it, but I did a video saying, hey guys, you know, you can believe that Black Lives Matter and you can also believe that like most police are, are good people trying to do the best they can. Like those two ideas are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. But that like, if you say something like that, if you say, well, I support the police, people will be like, you're saying Black Lives don't matter and you're a racist. And then on the other side, you're saying like, if you say, well, you know, I support the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, well, you think we should defund the police? And so it's taking the most extreme positions and it's just so intellectually lazy, but I guess that's where we've gotten to in this day yeah. and age. Sorry, that was my really long-winded uh, no. answer to your question about reverse it, dieting. Somehow I took reverse dieting to Black Lives <laughs> Matter and the police. Wow, that was a hell of a rabbit hole. I can, I always enjoy their answer. I'm sure the the listeners will as well because it, it's so true. It's people pigeonhole people and they create straw men when in fact you should be. I think it's called a still man. You should be still man in that argument, but that's difficult to do unless you're sitting on a podcast and talking back and forth to one another. Which is why yep. I love being able to host those roundtables and why it's great that you're having the actual debate with him. So then people can watch that and you can refer them to it so that you can be sure that you're actually getting what you mean across and not someone's just saying this is what you're saying and then it just gets passed down the line and everyone's kind of looking at it the wrong way so um it's really nice i think to be able to have this platform and have people hear your kind of actual this is what reverse dieting is and this is how you got to where you are and um it was yeah interesting to hear that it was just like a a happen chance discovery but i think a lot of the great things we discover is like you are coaching and you learn so many things from like real world examples because science can only show you so much well that's the that's the thing is i tell people like if you're you know people say should i go do a like a phd or a master's or whatever i said well if your goal is to go do that degree and have it tell you how to coach somebody you're going to be very underwhelmed now science and scientific studies those are big blunt instruments. Coaching is an art form. Okay. There are plenty of coaches who do not have a scientific background who are good coaches. Here's why they, one, don't get married to any one methodology. And two, they pay attention to what happens to their clients. Those are the biggest two things. All right. Let me tell you why Bill Belichick is the greatest coach in uh, football history. And I'll relate this to why it's important for diet nutrition. Uh, so Bill Belichick for our UK uh, people is an American football coach. Uh, I believe he's won more Super Bowls than any other coach uh, with the Patriots. And uh, if you watch the games, he like there's a lot of coaches out there who say, we're going to run the ball and play defense, or we're going to play this style of defense, or we're going to do this. We're going to impose our will. Bill Belichick never says that. His philosophy of coaching is I'm going to find where we match up best with our particular opponent and I'm going to exploit that. So if that means I've got to pass the ball 80 times in a game, that's what I'm going to do. If it means I've got to run the ball 80 times in a game, that's what I'm going to do. So he is not, the only thing he's married to is winning, right? 
So how do you win? You score more points than the other team. That can happen whether you win three to nothing or 50 to 49, right? So the same thing can be said for diet, right? Like let's just take fat loss, for example. All that matters is getting somebody to lose the fat and try to keep it off in a methodology. You know, the methodology is less important. Mm. So for some people, maybe that's low carb. For some people, maybe that's whole food plant-based. For some people, maybe it's low fat. For other people, maybe it's a flexible dieting model or counting macros or whatever. All of those are just tools and different methods. But people confuse the methodology for the outcome. What I mean by that is I'll have people say, literally, I don't believe in energy balance because I track calories and didn't lose weight. Or I lost weight without tracking calories, so I don't believe in calories in and calories out. You're confusing a method, a tool for the outcome. There is no debate amongst actual scientists. Energy balance absolutely exists. If you are going to lose weight, it's because you expended more energy than you took in. You cannot just randomly generate carbon skeletons. And if you take in more carbon than you output, uh, you have to do something with that carbon. Like this is, this is physics. So I think what people don't understand is that, you know, metabolism is not static. So they, they also think, well, calories in and calories out are two static variables that don't affect each other, but that's not true. Hmm. Calories in absolutely affects calories out. And there's evidence that calories out might affect calories in. That, that's called the constrained uh, total daily energy expenditure model, which is, it's kind of, it's kind of a hotly debated topic. Um, I tend to think that there's something to it, but it's probably not the whole story. So that again, you don't want to get married to a method. And that's the biggest thing about being a coach. Get married to the results. Don't get married to a method. And that, the other thing I say, and hopefully I can say this without being labeled a misogynist, it it's, was originally said by Tupac Shakur. So <laughs> please, uh, I'm not taking this quote, um, but I think it's a nice co-op. So I always say, um, date your beliefs. Don't get married to them. You want to date your beliefs, but you don't want to make that hoe a housewife. All right. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you get married to your beliefs or you get married to your ideas, it's really hard to divorce them, right? But if something, if you're just dating them, if it's just like, yeah, this could be right, but it might not. Then if you have to admit you're wrong, it's not as much of a gut-wrenching attempt. But if you've got, for example, in your Twitter or Instagram bio, low-carb coach, or carnivore, or vegan, or whatever. Now that is part of your identity. That is tied up as part of who you are as a person. And attempting to divorce that is very difficult. And it's also why if they do divorce it, they tend to jump ship to something that's also extreme, right? I've seen so many carnivores who previously were vegan. And I'm like, like, how did that I, I want to see the mental gymnastics that were involved <laughs> in that. Didn't feel good on vegan, so let's go do the exact opposite thing, right? Like, um, so I realized I went down another rabbit hole, <laughs> but um, I think science is very important. Scientific studies are great to read, but if you're if you're looking for a scientific study to tell you how to do things, you're going to be really, really disappointed. But I always compare it to a house, right? So what do you see when you look at a nice looking house? 
you see the windows, you see the doors, you see the trimmings, you see all that kind of fancy, you know, light, nice looking stuff. Um, but what you don't see is the foundation, but that house doesn't stand without a foundation. I think the understanding of science and logic is the foundation. So while, you know, I've had people say to me, like, why am I learning this general chemistry? I'm never going to use this in the real world. Eh, maybe you'll never directly use it, but if you don't have that foundational understanding, like you're never going to get to the, the nitty gritty concepts that you actually do want to understand, like nutritional biochemistry. Like you have to build that foundation to really understand. Now, again, I'm not saying you're going to have a bachelor's or anything like that, but you, you do need to have some kind of foundational scientific mm -hmm. uh, understanding. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. Yeah, I think it's like when we're talking about, I always talk about training nutrition, I talk about principles and then as long as they're the backbone, many roads to Rome, uh, like yes. you kind of basically have said there. And that comes back down to the whole evidence base and being intellectually honest, not being dogmatic. And I think unfortunately, not just for people, but for coaches, it's quite easy for them to like push and be confident with one thing and they kind of make themselves, I don't know, the if it fits your macros coach. Yeah. And then if they ever kind of say, oh, kind of, I don't know, f food quality matters. And it's like, well, isn't that a bit opposing to, I don't know, yeah. your core philosophy. And so if you're truly kind of evidence-based, it's like, and you can truly be a coach and troubleshoot, you don't take away any of your tools. You're open to many different ones. You might have ones you favor, but I think it, yeah, I think that was really well said. Yeah, I mean, I've been close to going into echo chambers, right? So a lot of this started, you know, I was kind of the original IFYM guy, right? But a lot of that was because people would ask me, hey, is this bad for me? And right. I'd kind of go, well, it depends on your goals. And like, if it fits your macros, you know, there's no evidence that it's going to hurt you, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so people took that to say that food quality doesn't matter. If you ask me, people will say, well, are you saying that I could just drink protein shakes um, eat uh, bags of sugar and then take a fiber supplement and, you know, uh, drink oil. And it's the same as, you know, this other diet. I'm like, well, first off, like we are so like, that is such an extreme example. Like that is so reductionist, right? I, I don't know, you know, but based on our randomized control trials, I don't know, maybe body composition wise, maybe, your quality of life is going to be shit because that's a really crappy diet because diet is a lot more than just what you, you know, what you put in your body macros wise. Um, but I don't know, you know, maybe it'll work. I don't know. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's, that's really funny because I never made strong claims about it. I just said, well, if you're telling me that you can't have X food, I'm going to tell you that that's wrong. You know, like um, that was kind of the, the core of it was, yeah. you know, when I got into it, everybody just ate clean. Right. And the fir first thing I had a problem with was like, well, how do you define clean? So I always have this thing in my head when somebody makes a claim, whenever anybody makes a claim, my first thought initially is, hmm, I wonder if that's bullshit. <laughs> now that's, that's just my first thought. I don't, I don't know if it's probably a curse. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was willing to believe more stuff, but I just, my first thought is, hmm, wonder if he's full of shit. Um, so when people would say this sort of stuff, well, you, you can't eat, you couldn't eat candy on a contest prep and get lean. 
And I, I think, well, I don't know if that's true, you know? And, and, and we know it's not true because like, this is the funny thing about people who get so entrenched in diet camps, whether it be low carb or low fat or whatever. I'll say, we have seen people get to the lowest levels of body fat humanly possible using literally every methodology under the sun. Literally every method you can think of. The one commonality is they are very energy restricted and they do a lot of activity. That is the one commonality, okay? So obviously, like you said, there are many roads to Rome, right? So now when I got, I think what we find is, I, I call this, are you familiar with a guy named Tim Tebow before I say this? No, I am not. All right, so he's an American footballer. And okay. um, so I call this the Tim Tebow effect, all right? Now, Tim Tebow was an American footballer who became uh, very, people, you either loved Tim Tebow or you hated him. So I, he actually wasn't that controversial of a guy. He never said controversial things. He got controversial because he was very unconventional as a quarterback. He wasn't what your typical quarterback looked like and he didn't play like a traditional quarterback and he was very religious and he was kind of open about his religion, but he, he was never pushy with it. So what I saw happen and what happened to me actually, so this is the first time I found myself getting sucked into an echo chamber was I actually, I was like, you know, I kind of like this guy. Like he looks like he works really hard. He seems like a nice person. You know, he's not traditional quarterback, but you know, so I kind of liked him. Then I would listen to everybody saying he sucks. He's terrible. He'll never do anything. And it made, it made me almost feel defensive on behalf of that guy and say, well, what are you talking about? Like, I'm sorry, how many of your quarterbacks have won a playoff game? You know, like that sort of thing. And people would just go to the, the extremes. And I see this in nutrition as well, where it's, you know, if, if you start out, like in, I, I would say I almost got there with IFYM, right? So where people would say, you can't get shredded eating candy to where you almost like want to prove them wrong so badly that you're almost willing to like eat nothing but candy just to prove to people, hey, you fucking can, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have to do it. We've seen that. We've actually seen people do it, right? <laughs> um, but that's like, I don't think that that's actually the best way to do things, yeah. right? Um, but I never notice, I never put IFYM coach in my bio. I never put flexible dieting guru in my bio, right? Like, and I never made insane, insane claims about either. Now, you know, I've walked it back even more saying, you know what, this is definitely a really useful tool. And I think it's a really useful tool for a lot of people, but it's probably not for everybody, right? And uh, if people were just able to do that with whatever diet methodology we're on, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I can tell if somebody's really insecure about their diet if they're really pushy about it. Mm -hmm. Like if your diet's so great, why do you care if somebody else is doing it? Like, why do you feel the need that somebody else has to do it? It's because you're insecure about it and you want external validation from other people that you're doing the best possible thing, right? So yeah, I, I think that that's, that's something I really try to emphasize to people is like, hey, it's fine to share anecdote, but when you get pushy or you start making crazy claims, that's where you're crossing the line. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. And yeah, I'd actually forgotten that you were probably one of the foremost proponents or proponents or kind of founders of kind of the if it fits your macros sort of movement with maybe like uh, 
Lyle McDonald and Alan Aragon, I can remember. That's where I first came across it was yeah. uh, through you guys on the bodybuilding forums. And I remember being completely adamant that there was complete bullshit and I couldn't go down that route. And then I slowly <laughs> started incorporating some things and I was like, ah, like it seems to work as long as I keep my like my baseline diet is pretty much the same. I hit these numbers and it works well. And I think there was a, probably a time where people were then like, this is amazing. I can eat these delicious foods and still like get in great shape. And they fell in love with that ideology and maybe went too far down that hole for some people. So yeah, again, it's it's really refreshing to hear how even yourself, like you can recognize these things in yourself and you're not fallible, but you've managed to maintain that non-dogmatic, that open-mindedness towards other approaches and only further through your career, you've got better and better at doing that. Yeah, I think it's really hard to check yourself. Right. Like that's, that's really difficult. Fortunately, also my wife is a savage, so she checks me. Uh, But I think it's really hard to check yourself uh, with some of this stuff. I think that's why it's also important to have dialogue with intelligent people who don't necessarily agree with you. Right. But who don't frame it in a way that makes you feel like you're being attacked. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, I think that's really important. And, you know, I think for you, like having a, a podcast where you have a lot of different guests on, it probably makes you think about things in a lot of different ways as well, you know, because you just, you know, everybody has a different perspective on things. Like it's, it's so funny. We only, we only view stuff through the prism of us. Right. So like, for example, when I started flexible dieting, it's because I found that if I tried to stick to just certain foods, I ended up like, if I got outside of those, I would just binge eat. You know what I mean? Like I would just blow out. Uh, and I found that if I just basically, um, okay, I can have whatever I want as long as I hit these numbers, I had no problems after that with adherence. I mean, really had mm. very little problems, but not everybody's that way, right? But I kind of felt, wow, I found this thing that works. It must work for everybody, but that's not the case, right? Like it works for a lot of people and it's fine to acknowledge that, but it's also fine to acknowledge, no, there's some people who it's probably not going to work for and that's that's okay too. I'd- out of interest, um, we're coming to probably the close of things. I have actually, I would love to get you back on lane because I think this has been really interesting to talk to you and kind of delve into these things. But out of interest, uh, what are your kind of current, what are you up to at the moment? How, what is your diet doing at the moment? I know you recently went through a pretty extensive fat loss phase, I think. Yeah, it's actually the easiest fat loss phase I've ever done. Um, so I, I had, you know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but those who have followed me for a long time know that I've dealt with quite a few back injuries over the last five years. Um, and my latest one I sustained in 2017, which was really debilitating. I, I couldn't, I basically had to lay off of touching a barbell for nine months. Wow. Um, which from, it's funny. People are like, Oh, you're so dedicated to stay in the gym. I'm like, thanks dedication for me to stay out of the gym. Like <laughs> yeah. that was the most, like me not picking up a barbell was the most dedicated I've ever been in my life. Um, just doing the rehab, which is incredibly boring. And I Mm. hated every minute of it, but if it got me back, that's what I cared about. During that time of coming back to powerlifting, I kind of decided, all right, I'm not also going to try and like stay in this lower weight class because 93 kilo where I won my national titles, I'm pretty lean at 93. Like I'm pretty lean, not uncomfortably so, but I wanted to, I also lost a lot of lean body mass from around 2015 till 2017, just dealing with these injuries. So I wanted time to build back up that lean body mass. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to stay at this higher weight class, um, the 105 kilo class. I'm going to do my, my first nationals back there, see how it goes, see how I feel. 
and then I'll I'll start you know decide if I want to go down to ninety three. And it was hard for multiple reasons. Like um, you know, it's funny. I'm not fat at two hundred thirty pounds or one hundred five kilos. But if you watch like people's comments on my stuff, like people were pretty nasty. You know, they're like, how can you sell fat loss books when you look fluffy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I mean, I got pictures of me shredded too. Like, do you guys think I forgot how to do that in like the last couple of years? You know, like, like all of a sudden I just woke up and had amnesia about how to diet. Like, no, this, like this physique, this shredded physique was on purpose. This unshredded physique also on purpose, you know? Um, so after nationals last year, um, I decided, okay, you know, as sad as it is to say, um, I knew that it'd be better for business to drop back down to 93 as well. Cause it's just easier to sell shit when you're lean mm -hmm. as sad as it is that that is the blatantly honest truth. Um, so, you know, I dropped 25 pounds. I dropped from 232 down to about 207. I got to 207 in, I want to say late May, early June. So it was about eight months to get there. And it was really easy. One of the reasons it was easy um, was because I didn't put a time frame on it. I was just like, I'm just going to diet. And just, you know, if I need to take a diet break at maintenance here or there, or I need to do a few periods of reverse dieting, I will. If we had a vacation, took a diet break. If it was my kid's birthday, took a diet break. If we were traveling, took a diet break. Not a big deal. If I was starting to feel low energy and, you know, all that kind of stuff, took a diet break, you know? So I actually spended, I ended up spending just as much time at maintenance or reverse dieting as I was in a deficit. And it just made it feel easy. Like mm -hmm. the longest I spent in a deficit consecutively was three weeks and it just felt easy, you know? And so I think there's a lot of debate right now about diet breaks and whether they're physiologically superior. Yeah. For me in particular, um, I don't care if they're physiologically superior. I just notice it feels easier and I don't really care what the, what the reasoning is, yeah. you know, and that's, I think a lot of people, and I don't mean to pick on anybody in particular, but like, I think like Lyle and even Minnow, I think who are like, Lyle tends to be more abrasive than almost anybody, but Minnow's, I wouldn't say he's really abrasive, but he's just very analytical. So I think everything comes from the, and he's welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but everything comes from the perspective of, is this physiologically superior? Right. And I think psych, individual psychology gets discounted a lot. I've met people who don't like diet breaks because they just feel like it breaks up their yeah. dieting rhythm, you know, or they, they just don't want to take extra time. And I've met people who love them. I think most people, you know, I was on Ethan Suplee's podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I think I've heard of that name. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a Hollywood actor who was uh, very, very overweight and kind of, he got his roles because he was so, so obese. Uh, and now he's jacked <laughs> and he's like, kind of had to have a resurgence of his career to be the jack guy now. And so the fat yeah. guy, um, but he talked about how, when he kind of came across reverse dieting and diet breaks, how that was an absolute game changer for him because it was like, before it was either dieting or overeating. There yeah, was no in between, yeah. right? Where it's like, you find that what you can maintain your body weight on is actually usually a decent amount of calories, you know, especially if you're exercising. So this idea that, wow, I don't have to eat 1500 calories to maintain, you know, this physique I've, I've, I've achieved. I think for a lot of people, it can be a big game changer. And also just, you don't have to lose it all in one go, you mm -hmm. know, like 70 pounds or whatever for people who have, you know, a lot of body fat to lose, that can be a real daunting task. But if you tell somebody, Hey, 
you know, we're going to do four weeks and then we're going to take two weeks of break. You know, most people can, can hammer down for a couple of weeks, you know, but if you tell them to grind it out for a year straight, I mean, mm -hmm. that's a little bit tougher. So I think that was the big difference for me for this cut was just, you know, not putting a time frame on it, not putting any pressure on myself, just training hard. And also like shameless plug using our app carbon diet coach. Like yeah. I let the app coach me. Um, and it just felt easy. Like part of it was cause it was out of my hands. Cause I didn't, I didn't have to make decisions, you know, as dumb as it sounds, I know everything to do, but when it comes to me, I am an emotional, stupid yeah. person when it comes to my own nutrition and training. This is why I have a coach for powerlifting, right? Because I will overreact just like the next idiot to one bad training session. I will overreact to one bad weigh in just like the next idiot, right? So having our app to kind of like coach me through it and, you know, be an objective, you know, it's just evaluating data. It doesn't care yeah. about my feelings. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not, it's not listening to me whine or anything like that. Like, it's just telling me, Hey, you're doing good based on your weigh-ins, based on all these metrics. Cool. Or, Hey, you fell behind a little bit. We're going to lower the calories down. Here's your new macros. Cool. That, that honestly, that took 90% of the stress out of it for me. Yeah. Um, and especially like looking back at my last contest prep. Back in 2010, I mean, I got in really good shape and I, I coached myself for it, but my God, I will never do that again. I will never <laughs> coach myself again if I go back into bodybuilding. Never again because of the mind fuckery you do with yourself every day. Yeah. And especially based on the fact that we just, we know so much now about the mental perturbations from being that lean. Never again. <laughs> and I even told my wife, next time she diets down, you're either using the app or <laughs> hiring a coach because like... Your significant other doesn't count as a coach because yeah. it's still not the same as you dieting down. So um, I think just, you know, those three things, like not putting a time limit on it, uh, using the diet breaks and reverse dieting periods, and then using our app or, you know, coaching yeah. from an outside source that's not yourself, that is logical and not not emotionally invested is, is huge. So those made a big yeah. difference for me. Yeah, I think it's a lot of, that's why, I mean, people think as a coach, I shouldn't have a coach, but as the saying goes, coaches need coaches because whilst you might be able to coach someone else very well and objectively, when it comes to yourself, you can almost convince yourself of anything and you get too emotionally invested all the time. And yeah, it's, it's hard because uh, probably for you, even Lane, it was probably hard handing some of that stuff over because like you, part of you was like, ah, oh, but I know what to do and I can make like the best decisions. But once you hand it over, I bet that kind of was a relief when i was younger and obstinate i would say yes but now after <laughs> having so much experience especially my experience in 2010 of dieting myself down uh now nah, had no problems with it because <laughs> i just know how much st extra stress that is and i honestly don't have time like i don't like i don't have time to like if i have to think about my own nutrition i'm always putting myself last you know yeah. what i mean like, especially with kids and, you know, a bunch of different businesses and like even, you know, what, what I've got like three businesses we started this year or something like that. And then we've got another one coming. We're doing, um, I'm partnering with Bill Campbell and we're creating something called the Physique cool. Coaching Academy, which will basically be like, will be an accredited course for coaches to take that we will certify like basically body composition specialists, right? Oh, amazing. We online coach people. But I mean, that's, that's, it's probably gonna be one or two years in the making because the accreditation process is incredible. Um, but yeah, like I just don't have the time. Like that's, that's the thing is like, 
I even did a story today just talking about how little time I have. I'm like, if I answer your message, like I'm not saying you should like bow down and kiss my feet or whatever, <laughs> but that 30 seconds yeah. to me was a precious 30 seconds because it was 30 seconds I didn't spend doing something else that also needs to be done. So if I don't answer your message, don't take offense. It's not because I don't like you. It's just because I literally can't keep up with everything. Yeah, I can't imagine with like, I don't know, having the, the 400,000 followers, literally like 10 times the amount I've got. So I can't imagine how many messages you must get. And on that note of your time being precious, we are up to an hour. So I want to be kind of kind with that. And uh, so if people aren't following you, Lane, and they want to follow you, where, where are the best places to head um, to find out about your app and everything else? Yep. I am on the interwebs. Uh, you can find me, my website, my main website is biolane.com. Uh, our app I've been bragging on uh, is Carbon Diet Coach. You can find that on iOS and Android, or you can go to joincarbon.com. Um, my Insta all my social media is at biolane. So Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, and then we, we will have a supplement line that's going to be dropping. Uh, we had a pre-sale that's over. Uh, but it's called Outward Nutrition, outworknutrition.com. And that's going to be, uh, should be dropping like available for actual sale here in about eight weeks. Um, and we're just, you know, no fluff, no fillers, no BS, no proprietary blends, just, and no irresponsible marketing. That's our pledge. Um, it's just going to be straightforward products that help, um, that aren't magic, um, that, that we're very transparent about. So I got that. And, uh, and then we're redoing biolane.com. We're actually going to have a, uh, a research review that's going to be coming out uh, here in a few months. That's going to be, we're going to review five articles a month um, and think of it as mass light, right? So it's not going to be like mass is a pretty good deep dive to the point where I would say PhD level scientists could read it and gain something from it. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a little bit more for, like practical for the lay person or for your online coach who doesn't have a background in science to kind of help them critically evaluate research. Um, and you know, what does the research actually practically mean uh, for what they're doing? So that that's kind of what we got going on. And, um, as always, like you can drop me a line on any of the social medias. I'll do my best to get back <laughs> to you, but I, I can't promise anything. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lane. And I'll make sure that's all linked below as well. Sounds like, I mean, for the listeners, some really valuable resources. So yeah, again, I'm so glad we got to make this happen. Uh, thank you for being here. And I'm, I'm sure everyone loved it. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you having me on, man. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site.
So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.